BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On the Science Revolution this week, Dr. Michael Mann is here on climate change and the West on fire. Plus, there's a new study showing planet Earth may temporarily pass a dangerous 1.5 degrees Celsius warming limit by the middle of the next decade. This is a huge warning to us all. Former EPA official Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali drops by to warn us about creating an apocalyptic, devastated planet. Attorney for Earth Justice Bradley Marshall is here informing us about bomb trains. Earth Justice has just filed a legal challenge to stop them. And in Geeky Science, I'm looking at why the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine study was put on hold. Stay tuned. Tom Harbin here with you out here on the left coast where the sky is orange or brown or futsy or kind of golden, actually. It's a, a very, very strange color. Not normal. We're finding that the levels of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere right now compared to pre-industrial revolution, around the time of the American Revolution, are 147% up for carbon dioxide, 259% up for methane. That's almost tripled and 123% higher for nitrous oxide. What does this mean and where are we going with this? Dr. Michael Mann is on the line with us, the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology, the Director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State University, member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of numerous books, his most recent, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy, and the recipient of the Tyler Prize. I'm seeing this report here that says that we might hit that 1.5 degree level that the IPCC said, don't go there, don't go above that. We might hit that as early as 2024. Am I reading that right? There's a lot going on here. And the scenes that you describe and that I've seen playing out in California, we see on our television screens, the whole West Coast essentially on fire. The skies, as you note, are orange, red, yellow colors they're, they're not supposed to be. And this is disturbingly reminiscent for me of my experience just some months earlier this year when I was doing a sabbatical in Sydney, Australia. And whether you're mm. Sydney, Australia or California, you know, climate change is here. This is the face of climate change. It's not a far off threat. It's leading to extreme weather events and disasters like we're seeing right now along the West Coast, as we also have um, seen an extremely busy um, and devastating uh, Atlantic hurricane season here in the east that's uh, likely to get even worse. So the problem's getting worse. As you know, this latest report, um, carbon dioxide concentrations continue to rise, and they will continue to rise as long as we emit carbon into the atmosphere. And there's sort of a misunderstanding that's fairly widespread here when it comes to the difference between the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere and our carbon emissions. So our carbon emissions have actually gone down uh, about 4 or 5% this year. That's a good thing. But until we bring them down to zero, 
CO2 levels will continue to rise. It's sort of like your, the faucet um, in your sink, and you've got a tub of water. Um, as long as the faucet is on, the water level is going to rise. Uh, the water level is our CO2 concentrations. The faucet is our carbon emissions, and we've got to bring them down to zero. Now, you also asked about this, um, these dangerous thresholds that we are going to cross in the near future. Uh, if we don't bring our carbon emissions down by a factor of two within the next decade, um, then it will be very difficult to keep carbon dioxide levels below the levels that commit us to more than a degree and a half Celsius, uh, about uh, you know, a little under three degrees Fahrenheit uh, warming. And that threshold will be crossed most likely a little bit later than what this uh, recent uh, report, the WMO report, uh, claimed. They, they, they said, you know, by 2030. Um, and that reflects a bit of a misunderstanding between sort of the rates of temperature change from year to year and sort of the longer-term warming trend. Because the temperatures fluctuate quite a bit from year to year or even from one five period, uh, five-year period to another because of natural events like El Nino um, or volcanic eruptions. And so we measure the trend over you know a decade or two decades or longer and that trend right now is about uh, 0.2 degrees celsius per decade we're at about 1.2 celsius you know your uh, viewers can do the math if they like but what that means is that we will cross the one and a half degree celsius nearly three degree fahrenheit threshold about 2035 at the continued uh you know at the rate that we're warming right now so it's not quite as bad as the report made it sound the report says 2030 it's more like 2035 but you know we're haggling over five years um regardless of how you look at it this is an unfolding crisis that will continue to get worse if we don't do something and do something immediately yeah back a decade ago when i used to actually be willing to debate uh, these climate-denying fools like Mark Morano, uh, you know, Didn't who was we all? actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he used to come on the program fairly regularly, and and you know, I would point out, or he would point out, he would say, you know, hey, our carbon dioxide levels right now are, you know, more than a hundred percent what they were two hundred years ago, and the weather's not that different. Why are you so upset? <laughs> and my response was always. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it's like a, an ocean liner. I mean, you know, the, the atmosphere, the entire planet is this huge, massive thing. And, right. you know, you make these changes and it takes a while for those changes to filter into every dimension, every ecosystem, particularly the ones that are going to add on to the change that's already happening. And we're seeing that, right? I believe, I'd love to get your take on this. I believe we're seeing yeah. this right now. You know, over the last decade, these forests up and down the West Coast, have been drying out because of climate change. Yeah. While it didn't immediately burst into flames, it took a decade for all the trees to dry out yeah. and, and, and many of them to die off so that they're now tinder. And then that is going to be throwing more particulate matter into the atmosphere and, and it's going to reduce the, the number of, of, of trees that are, you know, cycling carbon back into the, you know, yeah, that. Right. And, and then, and it's the same thing with the peat, you know, with the, with the permafrost up in the northern climates. It takes a while for it to thaw it out, but once it thaws out, all hell breaks loose. Or do I have that wrong? No, you've got it right. We are the Titanic. You know, we are this huge ocean liner, and we've got to steer away from this iceberg that is getting closer and closer. And just as the Titanic found it couldn't steer fast enough to avoid it, you know, that's the problem that we will face if we don't 
steer away from the iceberg immediately, which means to, you know, ramp down our carbon emissions. Uh, there are sort of what we call threshold um, responses here. You know, sometimes we call them tipping points. Um, and, you know, the melting of the ice sheets is one of the, the tipping points we worry about. If we melt, you know, if we warm the planet up enough, then we can't stop the collapse of the West Arctic and, and Greenland ice sheet. And we get, you know, literally tens of feet of, of sea level rise, um, meters of sea level rise. Uh, and, you know, in, in this case, um, there may also be a threshold when it comes to wildfires. There's some, you know, the indication now that once you raise temperatures enough and you dry things out enough, you get qualitatively different types of wildfires. Wildfires that burn much hotter, spread much uh, faster, cover much wider areas. And you hear firefighters now. We heard this down in Australia saying, we have never seen fires like this during, you know, their, the black summer, we're calling it, last summer in Australia when the, the entire continent caught fire, uh, you know, essentially. Um, the, the firefighters were saying, we've never seen fires like this that, that spread so quickly, that burn um, this intensely. We don't know how to combat them. They are far more deadly um, to combat. Uh, and, um, you know, that's that's what we're seeing now. So... You know, we've warmed up, you know, the planet enough. We've dried out the subtropics, which is one of the predictions that climate models made decades ago. You know, we'll make it hotter. We'll make it drier in places like California and Australia. You put those two things together, you get worse wildfires. But once it gets hot enough and dry enough, and that's where we are, that's the territory we're moving into, you get qualitatively uh, worse, unprecedented wildfires that are like nothing we've seen before. And we, we're, we're now looking at two and a half uh, million acres burned in, in California alone. Right now, burning California are the second, third and fourth largest wildfire on record. The first being campfire two years ago that happened in the winter, not even the dry season. Yeah, and we're just at the very beginning now of a fire season for California. Yeah. It's amazing. Dr. Mann, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great talking with you. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, check out Dr. Mann's newest book, The Madhouse Effect. His website, Michael Mann with two N's, dot net. On the line with us is Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali. He uh, is a former EPA official who actually helped found the EPA's Department of Environmental Justice, their Office of Environmental Justice, and uh, now has some thoughts and some concerns. His website, by the way, uh, MustafaSantiagoAli.com, spelled pretty much just exactly the way it sounds. Uh, the Twitter handle is E-J-I-N Action. Dr. Ali, welcome back to the program. I see the Trump's current EPA chief has a new vision for the agency that uh, some critics are calling apocalyptic, that it'll produce a devastated planet. Um, first of all, welcome back to the program. And, and secondly, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on the direction that the EPA has taken versus where it was at when you were there. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me again. You know, it's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous for everyone in our country, but especially for our most vulnerable communities, communities that have been disproportionately impacted for decades upon decades in some instances. And now uh, with this administration, 
You know, they have placed crosshairs on these communities, the sacrifice zones, if you will, the dumping grounds for everything that nobody else wants in our country. Um, And because of that, they put people in very dangerous situations, both from pollution and from viruses uh, and from the impacts from climate change. So what was the EPA doing about this when you were there and what and, and how has that changed? Well, when I was there, you know, I started off at the Environmental Protection Agency as a student and then over the years, you know, worked my way up the ladder. Um, It was focused on our most vulnerable communities, on environmental justice communities. That um, trust that had to be built um, took time. It took folks being transparent and honest. It also made sure that vulnerable communities, communities of color, lower wealth communities and indigenous brothers and sisters had a seat at the table to help to frame out the policies that would impact them either in a negative or a positive direction. Um, And of course, we were focused on the positive uh, and making sure that, you know, we were minimizing and mitigating air pollution uh, and water pollution. And also, of course, dealing with the issues with on our lands. Um, So now this administration, as everyone has seen, you know, over 100 uh, environmental and climate Uh, rollbacks from this administration have sent a very clear message. The lives in these communities don't have value. And it's easy to to sort of analyze that, even though I know this administration places no value whatsoever on science. And of course, they have a very uh, tenuous relationship with the law. You can very easily see we've got 100,000 people who are dying each year in our country prematurely from air pollution. You know, the previous administrations, both Democrat and Republicans, and we should call that out because I worked under both of those, knew that you had to figure out a way to lessen the impacts that were happening from both air pollution and water pollution uh, and and other forms of pollution. Um, And each of those times, people were trying to figure out, well, how do we strengthen what's there so that people are more protected? This administration has taken a completely different path where the lives in those communities have been of no value because they have not been a part of the uh, overall analysis that has happened. So uh, one of the things that I'm familiar with is uh, coal ash. You know, when, when power plants burn coal, there's this ash that's left over that's highly toxic. It's got concentrated heavy metals in it. It's got radioactive substances in it. It's got um, you know, uh, high fraction hydrocarbons still, uh, you know, remnants in it that, that cause cancer, uh, causes all kinds of diseases. And I know in a couple of major cities that this was basically, you know, they just create these giant piles of this stuff and they would locate them next door to lar- most generally African-American communities, uh, poor communities of color. Um, a, is that the sort of thing that is, uh, you know, happening all over the country and has been for years and years? And is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Or is there another example that better illustrates specifically, you know, what you're concerned about here? Well, that's one example. But we're also, you know, concerned, you know, let's just real quickly run through some of the things that they've done. So, you know, we had worked before to have the clean power plan in place to, to limit emissions, uh, especially, you know, focusing on vulnerable communities, but overall to lower emissions for our country and for our planet. They did not see any value in that. When you look at the clean car rule, we know that, and I'm sorry, Tom, let's just call it out like it is. We know that systemic racism has played a role historically uh, in many of the policies that we have, um, whether we're talking about transportation or housing or the environment. So when you roll back 
something like, you know, the clean car rule. We know that in many instances, our roads and highways have been used to separate certain communities, move wealth into some communities and dump off pollution into others. So when you're saying that the pollution that's coming out of the back of those tailpipes, you know, it's okay for that to continue or to actually increase, then you're also sending a message to those vulnerable communities who are, in many instances, the ones who are closely located uh, to our roads and our highways, that, you know, it's okay for you to have those additional impacts. When you look at stuff like mercury, or not mercury, but actually methane, um, that you, you have these impacts that will happen both to uh, the air pollution by exacerbating and making it um, stronger, and at the same time also warming up our planet. Um, and we know that in many instances our climate emergency hits you know vulnerable communities first and worst. Um, and mercury is another example. We know that it has impacts on women and babies, um, and a number of other uh, types of challenges that come out of that. But they're saying it's okay for there to be more mercury um, that is in our environment, if you will. So there's a laundry list of things that these folks have done, which makes it really hard to believe that they care about the lives inside of our country. Don, uh, two, two data points here, and I'm, I'm wondering if there's a, an intersection or, or if these are merely coincidences. Uh, the first is Donald Trump put a coal industry lobbyist, Mr. Wheeler, in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency, which is what you know I was thinking when I was thinking coal ash. And the second is that he has ordered federal agencies to stop uh, diversity training or racial sensitivity training, um, you know, to stop educating federal workforces about the, you know, this, the, 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 the unique challenges that people of color in this country have historically faced and today face. Respond to those, please. I'm not sure how you can justify putting someone in charge of an environmental and public health agency who has spent their entire career uh, in, in trying to fight the mission of that agency. Um, so therefore, you must not see value in it. Uh, and when you raise your right hand, like all of us had to do when we became uh, taking on federal service, uh, I'm not sure how you live up to that mission or to that oath that you've taken. Um, on the other side of it, you know, by limiting folks' ability to unpack how racism has played a role um, in the location um, of many of our most toxic facilities, how it has played a role uh, in rulemaking and, and policy development, um, says that, once again, you're not interested in getting at the core uh, of where our problems lie. So when you say you can't have diversity training, then you're saying that those sets of conversations, which are so critical, um, are not important to your decision-making process. Um, and it also sends a very clear message that Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which says that you can't discriminate in the use of federal funds, uh, and a number of the other areas that fall underneath of that, are not that important. It's also to our states. No, and not a good message. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, uh, which is all, dot com is his website, EJIN Action, the Twitter handle. Dr. Ali, thank you so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking with you. Thank you. So the time for us to all start chanting, remember the Hindenburg? 
Although I don't think there's probably anybody alive today who actually remembers the Hindenburg. But, you know, back in the day, this giant Graf Zeppelin, what we might call a blimp that was filled with hydrogen gas, caught on fire. Oh, the humanity. Well, on the line with us is Bradley Marshall, the staff attorney with Earth Justice's Florida office. EarthJustice.org is the website. The Twitter handle is at EarthJustice. Bradley, tell us about these bomb trains. You know, we've had concern for years about radioactive material being shipped in trains, gasoline and other volatile compounds, but this is gas, as in gaseous gas? (laughs) Not quite, because they liquefy the gas by dropping the temperature to minus 260 degrees Fahrenheit and then compressing it to 600 times, so it's one six hundredth of its gaseous form into a liquid. And so all that energy and all that gas is in a compressed form in a tank car. These tank cars are giant things, and they're rolling down the tracks at 60, 70, 80, sometimes 100 miles an hour with lots and lots of vibration and going on and things. What happens if one of the seals starts to crack or, or, uh, you know, an overflow or they've got to have some kind of safety valves and those things fails? What happens when that gas starts to rapidly depressurize and turn from a liquid state into a gaseous state? Well, if that happens and the pressure relief valves fail, the pressure inside will actually just explode the car, what is known as a boiling liquid vaporization explosion, and can cause enormous damage. But, I mean, there are more concerns than just that. I mean, yes, if you just have the car sit there, eventually it will explode if the pressure relief device doesn't work. But if these cars derail or should otherwise leak, it can have catastrophic consequences if the now boiling natural gas methane is able to be ignited and floats. I think probably everybody at some point or other in their lives has seen a movie where, you know, there's a gas leak in a house and, you know, somebody lights a cigarette or, you know, flips a light switch and boom, the house explodes. That would be an amount of gas equal to, I'm assuming if it was liquefied, probably less than a cup of liquefied natural gas would be enough to blow up a house. Am I, am I estimating this correctly? And if so, how do we extrapolate that to a railroad car full of this stuff? You're absolutely right. A railroad car full of this stuff, if that railroad car was to leak into a stormwater or sewer system, because of the confined nature of such systems, one tank car could be enough to destroy an entire city if it leaked in the right place and it ignited. Let alone the unit trains are talking about of over 100 tank cars as a possibility. And if one of those tank cars goes up, it's going to be like the, you know, the, the blasting cap that takes the rest of them out. So where are these cars? Where are they coming from? Where are they going to? What do we know about this? Well, that's the thing is that there hasn't been much demonstrated market need. What we think is that the railroads want to do this is to create more customers. The last few years, the environmentalists and others have been standing up against pipelines as, as doubling down unnecessarily on a fossil fuel future that none of us want. So I think they're starting to think that these rail cars can basically act as a pipeline as a way of bypassing any system constraints. They do that with oil. Yeah, I mean, exactly. but, but oil is not as explosive as compressed natural gas. You're talking about a can of gasoline versus a box of dynamite. Pretty much. And then, you know, if oil, if it leaks, it just sits there. Right. Liquefied natural gas, if it leaks, it's going to quickly boil off, but 
boiling off means it's going to be above negative 260. It's still going to freeze anything in sight until it can warm up to ambient temperatures. And because it's so cold, it will be heavy and sink to any lower spots. And so it can travel quite far depending on what the terrain is. We're talking with Bradley Marshall, staff attorney with Earth Justice's Florida office. Earthjustice.org is the website. So if I understand correctly what you're saying, Bradley, these train cars do not yet exist, but the railroad lobbyists are trying to get regulation put into federal law for them so that they can exist. And because they would be considered regulated, local communities, for example, or states can't stop them from coming through. Do I have that right? Originally, what the DOT was proposing to do and what the railroads wanted was to use an existing 50-year-old designed rail car, which does not have a great safety history. And this is what they said has an excellent safety history. But as the National Transportation Safety Board pointed out in their comments, there's only 67 of these cars in existence, and of those, three of them derailed. And when they derailed, two of them just breached immediately, and the other had to be breached by emergency responders. So these things do not have wow. a history of being able to maintain their, their, their content safely. And so what, in the final rule, the one that we're challenging, they have required a new tank car with a slightly thicker shell. But they have provided no data, and there's no reason to think that the slightly thicker shell is going to be able to withstand any kind of high-speed impact. And its ability to withstand any kind of low impact is probably only marginally better than the existing tank cars. Amazing. And this is all being promoted by Elaine Chow's Department of Transportation. She of the hundreds of millions of dollars of net worth out of this Taiwanese shipping company. Is this just a grift to make money? I mean, is that what's going on here? I mean, the railroads and the fossil fuel industry is always looking to make money. And so I think that's certainly their interest here. I realize you're launching legal challenges against this. What about the public? Are you looking for public help on this? Certainly, you know, I think writing your congressman, writing your senators is always good. Congress can override under the Congressional Review Act uh, rules that are that come out of, of DOT or, or just write a new law that says you, you shall not transport LNG by rail. Mm-hmm. We've been hearing things out of the House uh, that they want to take some kind of action, but it's certainly an uphill battle, and I wouldn't have much hope with our current Senate. Remarkable stuff. Bradley Justice, staff attorney with uh, Earth Justice Florida's office, earthjustice.org, and you can tweet at Earth Justice. Bradley, thanks so much for dropping by. It's good talking with you. Thank you. You too. Sponsoring the interview this week is... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. 
Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So a half a million children diagnosed with COVID, a half a million, 513,415 children diagnosed with COVID. We've only had this disease floating around for six months, more or less, here in the United States. We have no idea what the long-term consequences will be. There is this phenomena known as long haulers, people who have had, you know, who got COVID and it just basically never went away. And there's a lot of them. And we're starting to see more and more news reports about this. And most of those people who get it and it's a long haul thing are younger people in their 20s, 30s and 40s. And it just hangs on and hangs on and hangs on, and it's just ruining their lives. And nobody knows. Five, ten years from now, are they still going to be disabled, essentially? We don't know. And similarly, we don't know its impact on these 513,000 American children who have been diagnosed so far. We do know from a study that was fairly solid, well-done study out of Germany, where they went back and they looked at people in their 40s, Median age was 40, actually. There were people, younger people and older people, but the median age was around 40. These were people who all had COVID symptoms. So they were all diagnosed as a result of symptoms. Only a very small percentage of them were so sick that they required hospitalization or intubation. But they all had, you know, the sore throat or the cough or whatever. And they had all recovered, all of them. And they put them in an MRI machine and looked at their hearts, and they found that 80% of them, had what looks like permanent heart damage. And some of these people just had mild flu kind of symptoms. So what's this going to do to our kids? We don't know. But meanwhile, the vaccine that AstraZeneca is phase three right now, AstraZeneca is the pharmaceutical company. They're doing this in conjunction with the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. But they're running the tests at dozens of sites, both in the UK and across the United States, where they're giving the vaccine. They're trying to give the vaccine to 30,000 people. And they just paused it because somebody had a bad side effect. The bad side effect has been reported in the media, but it doesn't get it's not often mentioned. The bad side effect that this one person had, according to the media reports, is called transverse myelitis. Myelitis is when the spinal cord becomes inflamed. And of course, the spinal cord is the grand central station for the nervous system. It's how thoughts and movement and impulses and all kinds of things get transmitted from the brain to the, to the rest of the body and how the body transmits you know, data, touch, pain, etc., back to the brain. And uh, transverse means that it goes across, you know, sideways across the uh, you know, a slice of the, of, the, of the spinal column gets inflamed. And it is characterized, uh, quoting here just from the Wikipedia page on transverse myelitis, characterized by weakness and numbness of the limbs, deficits in sensation of motor skills, dysfunctional urethral and anal sphincter activities. In other words, you 
apparently lose your ability to control when you're going to go on both sides, number one and number two. And high blood pressure because it, uh, de- it deregulates essentially the autonomic nervous system. And it's extremely rare, which increases from some of the press reports I've been seeing the probability that it's actually a side effect of the vaccine. And if that's the case, this vaccine, by the way, that, that, that they're working on, um, there are no, we've never, literally never had a successful vaccine for a coronavirus. Never happened. The common cold is a coronavirus. We've been kind of, you know, this has been the holy grail for pharmaceutical companies for, for 100 years or for 50, 60, you know, as long as there's been a serious vaccine industry is coming up with a vaccine for the common cold. But you, you just can't do it because the cold virus is constantly mutating, just like the flu, flu virus. You know, you get, the, you get a flu shot and it's got the wrong virus in it, the wrong strain that year, no immunity. So we've never been able to do this for coronavirus. And I think that we need to be planning for the long haul here as well as hoping for the best. But, you know, what's the old saying? Uh, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Meanwhile, a study out of China where they're kind of flipped out about the fact that meat and fish being shipped into China are infected or not infected with, um, have on their surface live active coronavirus that apparently got there from meat packers and fish packers in the United States, you know, having, you know, sneezing on the, on the meat products. And so this study, uh, Jason Gale writing this for Bloomberg News, coronavirus lingering on chilled salmon may be infectious for more than a week, according to researchers in China. It could survive for eight days at four degrees Celsius. That's roughly the temperature at which the fish are transported. That's 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, This is what the report says, and I quote, SARS-CoV-2 contaminated fish from one country can easily be transported to another country within one week, thus serving as one of the sources for international transmission. As of Monday, China had halted imports from 56 companies in 19 countries after employees in China were infected with COVID by having contact with meat or fish products coming from outside the country. I curious what this is going to do to the sale of frozen or even chilled meat and fish products in the United States. This is uh, downright spooky. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.